In the evening in our series in this New Testament letter to the <coughs> Hebrews, these Jewish Christians, which we've entitled Living by Faith, we focused on the miraculous birth of Isaac to his elderly parents, Abraham and Sarah. If you were there, the theme was, or you've heard it on the internet or through tape, the theme was faith and faithfulness. And I began by using the illustration of the wedding service and the questions that are put to the bride and groom in which they promise to remain faithful to each other for as long as they both shall live. Or in the somewhat quaint old-fashioned words, till death us do part. Now our theme today focuses on that certainty which faces not just married couples but every one of us here. The certainty of death. So let me begin with another service in which I am greatly involved in this church. Not the wedding service, but the funeral service. And unlike the wedding service, at a funeral service, very interestingly, I only thought of it this week actually, never too old to learn, there are no questions asked at funeral services. Only statements. The person concerned can no longer respond. So here's the most important statement which is made either in the crematorium or less frequently now when the coffin is lowered into the grave. For as much as it has pleased Almighty God His great mercy to receive and Himself the soul of our dear brother here departed we therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, in sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you may be sitting there this morning and thinking this is a very morbid subject for a Sunday morning. Do we not say, <clears throat> where there's life, there's hope? But these words spoken at a Christian funeral service assure us that where there's death, there's hope. Sure and certain hope. That's our theme today. Faith and hope. As we turn to Hebrews 11, I'm going to turn to the words, it's on page 1209. There are Bibles in the pews if you don't have one. I'll put the words on the screen in a moment if you can't see a Bible. But let me just review where we've come to in Hebrews 11, which the children also did for us very well. So just stay with me for a moment, for a long moment actually. We've seen that faith is always, in the Bible, faith in God. Believing that God will keep His promises. That God is faithful. And the writers of this letter, in this chapter, has listed various people from the past in the Hebrew Scriptures who lived by that kind of faith. Abel, <coughs> Enoch and Noah. 
And then he introduces the most important character he's going to focus on more than anyone else. A man named Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. A man who believed God's promises and acted on them. Abraham set out for a promised land where, verse 9, if you have the Bible in front of you, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And Abraham and his wife, despite their advanced age, verse 12, considered him faithful who had made the promise, the promise of a child and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as sand on the seashore. But at this point, as we come to verse 13, he pauses in his catalogue of people and he's going to make a new point, a new fact about faith. So let's read the verses and as we're reading them, ask yourself, what is the new fact that's introduced at this point? All right, here we go. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. <clears throat> Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So what's the new fact about faith we learn here? Quite simply, it is this. Death does not invalidate the promises of God. Death does not invalidate the promises of God. Have you ever seen one of those free offers? You see it in a newspaper. It's happened to me. Or on uh, a food product, a special offer. And you think, wow, that looks great. And then you read the small print and to your disappointment you see the date for it has already expired. It's no longer valid. You can't apply it any longer. You're disappointed. You've missed out. So what about God's promises? Do God's promises have an expiry date? More importantly, what about your expiry date and my expiry date? When I expire... Will I end up disappointed? Will I discover that God's promises have failed? That is vitally important. If you're a professing Christian, it is of the utmost importance to know that when you come to the end of your life, whenever it may be, that it's not all been an illusion and a waste of time and you're disappointed. But our verses assure us of this. If you live by faith, you can die in faith. Look at verse 13. All these people, particularly the ones he's just mentioned, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their families, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. So, how can you die in faith, not disappointment? I said it sounds a morbid subject. It's actually a subject of the absolute extreme importance. How can you die in faith and not be disappointed? Especially if, when you die, you've not received the things yet that God has promised. Only if you realise that the things God has promised lie in the future, a future which lies beyond this life, and in fact can only be reached through the doorway of death. That's how the people in the past, our writer says, Live by faith 
and died in faith. They had a future hope. Listen to what he says. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Verse 16. So, <clears throat> let me start right at the beginning and say, do you have such a hope? Heaven forbid, suppose today was the last day of your life. Would you die disappointed? Would that be the end of everything? Or if it happened, would you say, well, I've got a hope that lies beyond death, beyond the grave. So let me talk a little bit from these verses about how you can be sure of that. How you can die in faith. The only way is to live by faith, like the people in these verses. And in these verses, there are three steps in living by faith and in dying in faith, which you'll find in verse 13. And they're highlighted by the three verbs that are used there, the three things that these people actually did. Uh, look again at verse 13 then. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. So what, a, what did they do? Three things. They only, one, saw them. Two, welcomed them from a distance. And three, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. So look with me at these three things and ask yourself, have you taken these three steps? Because they're of vital importance if you're going to live by faith but ultimately die in faith. Okay, the first word, use three words that alliterate, and uh, to our church meeting I was reminded that it's really annoys some people, so if it annoys you, just ignore it. Um, here's, the, here's the first word, all right? The word comprehension. They saw. That's the first thing they did. Now, the word translated saw there is not the normal word for physical sight. I see you, you see me. It's much wider than that. It means to inspect to examine, to discern something. It's an activity of the mind. It's a word to do with understanding something properly. You see, living by faith begins, first of all, with God and what he does. That God speaks and we begin to understand. For Abraham, it began with hearing God's call. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord has said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to the land, I'll show you. And with God's call, whenever God asks us to do something, He always makes promises with His commands. Here's what He promised Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, Abraham didn't sort of sit down one day under a tree somewhere and dream up, wouldn't it be great to be the father of a nation? Wouldn't it be wonderful to go to a promised land and set up a, an empire and have millions of descendants? No, the Lord spoke to him and gave him these promises and then he renewed them to his son and his grandson. Their faith began with comprehension, understanding what God was saying to them. Now, this is so contrary to the view that most people have about faith. They think faith is, imagine something you'd like to happen, and keep on believing it, whatever. And you'll get it. You know, it's the power of positive thinking, that kind of thing. But faith in the Bible always begins with God and what He says, what He promises. 
And as with all promises, if I make a promise to you, I'll see you on Wednesday, promises always relate to something that's not yet happened in the future. And that is why our verse tells us that although Abraham and his family got these promises from God, they did not receive them. Nonetheless, he says, they saw them. They understood them. They saw them from a distance. See, comprehension means hearing God's call, receiving God's promises concerning the future. They saw them from a distance. Now, when he says they saw them from a distance, he's not talking about space, you know, like a bird of prey that can see things on the horizon that the human eye cannot possibly perceive. What he's talking about is seeing in time what we could call foresight. When God spoke to him, Abraham saw or understood things that would happen far into the future beyond his own lifetime. And he died believing and still seeing them in the distance. So what did Abraham exactly see in the future? Well, he did see the promise of a great nation and many descendants, although when he died he only had one son and two grandsons. He died believing in a promised land, although when he died, all his family owned was one field that he'd bought from a local chief as a burial plot. But even further into the distance, he saw something else. He saw someone else. Listen to the words of Jesus. These these are remarkable words. Especially if you're one of those people who believe Jesus was a great moral teacher. And that's all. Here's Jesus debating with the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders in his day. And they're basically saying, who do you think you are? We know your family. You're nobody. Here's what Jesus said in answer. John 8, 56. He said, Abraham saw me. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day He saw it and was glad. It's the same original word for see. Now, that is an incredible statement to make. In fact, the Jewish leaders said, what do you mean Abraham saw it? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham lived hundreds, thousands of years before. Only a couple of thousand, 1,500 years, no, more than that. Two and a half thousand years before. How could... He saw by faith God's promises would be fulfilled in someone. Oh, he didn't have sharp focus probably. He didn't see with absolute clarity, but he was looking forward to God's promises being fulfilled and in some way by faith he saw what God had revealed to him that Jesus would fulfill all those promises. And and Abraham saw even further into the future. Our verse tells us, verse 10, he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Way into the distance, he saw the promises of God that God was going to build a city, a heavenly city. And his family saw that it was located within a better country. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And all those promises of God find their fulfillment in the coming of God's Son Jesus. It's all part of God's wonderful plan. So the first step of faith today, we don't go back to Abraham and those promises. We go forward to the fulfilment of the promises in Jesus when we hear the message of God which centers in his son Jesus Christ who is the key person in human history. 
The first step of faith is faith in Christ. So the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Rome, makes this principal point. He says, faith comes from what? From hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So if you're going to start out on faith, and this journey of faith, you've got to start off with comprehension, understanding what God is saying. That's why as a church we emphasise preaching God's word. That's why we give so much priority to the Bible, because we believe it's God's word. It's the way God has spoken, his final decisive word. You need to read and understand that. But that's not enough. Comprehension is the first step. Here's the second one, which we call commitment. Since they not only saw these promises, they welcomed them. The word welcome is a lovely word in the original. It means to greet someone, to embrace someone. It's quite hard for us to understand in our culture. Many years ago, I was very annoyed, uh, very amused, when I lived in Nigeria. I happened to over, overhear a Nigerian colleague who'd, who'd lived in the UK explaining to his friend who was going to study in the UK how to greet when you go to the UK. Looking at my Nigerian friend up there and he's going to laugh here at this point. All right, and Kim, okay. This is what he said. He said, when you meet someone in, in the UK, he said, in the UK, this is how they greet. He said, supposing you're walking along a road like this and you see someone coming towards you, as you walk past, you go, mm, and then you walk on. <laughs> he said, if you know them, you might stop and say hello. But they don't greet in England like we greet in Nigeria. See, in Nigeria, it'd be utter rudeness, wouldn't it, to go past someone and go, mm. <laughs> or even to say good morning. They say, what's wrong with him? He didn't stop, he didn't greet. And if you really know someone well, well, you embrace them. You wrap your arms around and say, hi, how are you doing? How's your dog, your cat, your cows, your chicken? It takes a long time. When we lived in a village in Nigeria, we, we learnt how to greet people. You know, in England you just learn, good morning, how are you, I'm fine, thank you very much. In Nigeria we had to learn, it's like ping pong, you learn about 30 phrases. You know, how are you, how's the children, how's the dog, how's the cat, how's the work, you know, you, bong, 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 you know and you greet, you're interested in one another. Now, to embrace someone like that is a sign of acceptance. So what the writer is saying here is, Abraham and his family, they didn't just comprehend God's promises and what God was saying. They embraced them. Sometimes talk about a person coming to faith saying, it's a lovely expression I should say, he's embraced the Christian faith. He's not only understood it, but he's committed himself or herself to it. Think of another example. Supposing you see in the newspaper you're thinking of moving house, and you see in the newspaper there's one of these new housing estates with all these flash houses they're going to build, you know? And so you go out there, if you, some of us have done this, and you go out there to the show home. And it's a building site, it's a, you know, it's people working and everything, and the person in charge will take you in and they'll get out a catalogue and they'll say, this is what the houses are going to look like. And they'll show you a design and a plan. They might show you a, an architect's reconstruction of what it's actually going to look like. Even a picture or a drawing. But it's not the reality. 
Now, you may understand all that and say, yeah, I can see where the bathroom's going to be. I see they've got three rooms and a lounge and a dining room. And yeah, I like the look of that bit and that bit. You can comprehend it, but you're not necessarily going to embrace it. You embrace it when the person says to you, now they're selling very quickly and there's only one left. Which they always tell you, don't worry about that. Or two left. And they say, if you want it, you've got to commit to it, put a deposit down. Now, that's a different thing, isn't it? Putting the deposit down and saying, yeah, I understand what it's about, but it's not for me, I don't want it. Now, there are people like that, understand the Christian faith. You might be one of them. You might have come here for years. But you've never embraced it, you've never said, that's for me, I wholeheartedly accept that. It's not only understanding what God offers, it's embracing it. You need to be convinced. Uh, some versions of the, uh, of the New Testament, some texts in the New Testament, add a little word here, another verb. Uh, they, they welcomed it and were persuaded. Interesting word that's used quite often in the New Testament, persuasion. The, you're convinced by the evidence. Again, this, this just gives a lie you know, to the Mark Twain definition of faith. Faith is believing in something you know isn't true. Faith is believing in something that you've examined and have come to be convinced is true. That's why something like the Da Vinci Code is such a wonderful opportunity for Christians to explain what we believe and why we believe it. I hear reports of people saying they've read the Da Vinci Code and it's shaken a Christian's faith. I say, friend, if you're a Christian, just look at the evidence. It's absolutely nonsense. The evidence on which our faith is based is sure and reliable, historically reliable. Look at the evidence. There are leaflets and books still in the lounge available from when we had a special service and there's stuff on the internet on our website about it. The Apostle Paul described his work when he went around the world preaching the gospel as being trying to persuade people about the truth of the Christian faith. When he arrived in the city of Corinth, we read that every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But not only do you need to be persuaded, commitment means being persuaded and then being obedient. God spoke to Abraham and his family. He said, I'm going to give you these fantastic promises for the future. But in order to avail yourself of this promise, you've got to leave Ur of the Chaldees, one of the most sophisticated cities in the world, and go on a pilgrimage. So Abraham left, as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. You set out when you hear God's promises and you begin to put them into practice. Let me say one other thing before we move on from this point. I've said this before in a similar way, but it's worth repeating. It means being convinced of the evidence to make a commitment. Faith involves a commitment to the will on the basis of understanding. It means trusting God and trusting His Son, Jesus. But it doesn't mean understanding everything. If you are waiting to become a Christian until you understand everything, you will die never understanding everything. Because no one can understand everything. Rather, it means understanding enough of who Jesus is and what he offers to make a step of commitment. Here's an illustration I've used before, and again, it's probably worth repeating. Think of a young man who falls in love with a young woman. He doesn't fall in love one day and marry her the next, so someone at the door is going to tell me they did exactly that, but not normally anyway, all right? No, he sees someone he likes. He invites her out. He gets to know her. He grows to love her and he hopes she grows to love him. 
But imagine, and this also happens sometimes, and I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here, right? You come back 20 years later, and he's still in a relationship with the young woman. He's still, he says, in love with her. And you say, but are you not yet married? And he says, no, not yet. And you say, well, why not? What's wrong? And he says, well, there's some things I'm not sure about her that I still don't know. Well, that's part of the mystery of marriage. Just go for it, you know. I mean, (laughs) you'll never understand everything. There comes a point when you say, right, I know enough about you to make a commitment. And it is an act of faith. But you've got to take the step at some point and make the promises. Now, that's sad, but the even sadder situation is the person who's been around churches for years and years and years and they know all about the Christian faith. At this point, you've been dropping asleep because you think, heard it before, know it. But you've never yet made that commitment to Jesus Christ. You need to take a step of commitment. That's the second step of faith. The third step follows from it. Comprehension they saw. I need to move on. The time's going. Commitment they welcomed. Thirdly and finally, confession they admitted. The word admitted there is not a very good translation in my opinion. You normally admit something if you're asked about it. You know, admit you did it. But the word translated admit here in the original language literally means to confess or declare something openly. Next Sunday evening, God willing, the floors will be removed and we'll have a baptismal service and probably three people are going to confess their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't get them up in the pulpit in the pool and say, okay, admit it, you're really a Christian. No, they freely and willingly stand up and say, I'm a Christian. I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And God has given us this wonderful visual picture of how you do that. You start off by being baptised. It's an open way of confessing that you belong to Christ. People keep sometimes saying to me, why should I be baptised? The man who was baptised, that Ethiopian in the book of Acts, he didn't say that. He said, why shouldn't I be baptised? If you believe with all your heart, you may. But baptism is only the start. The beginning of the journey is an ongoing journey. And the way it's demonstrated is the way that you live. When Abraham and his family understood God's promises, comprehended, when they committed and set out on the journey, it involved a complete change of life and lifestyle. They left behind the benefits and securities of that amazing city, Ur of the Chaldees, and the idolatry there. And they set out on a pilgrimage to the promised land where they lived in tents. It involved a change of lifestyle because he says here, they confessed, they declared, we're aliens and strangers. Throughout their lives, they were refugees in somebody else's country. They didn't belong. They had no fixed abode, no rights, no privileges. They were foreigners and they showed that by living in tents. And all those who live by faith are aliens and strangers in this life. An alien and a stranger can be identified or should be identified by his or her lifestyle. We hold on lightly to material things because we're aware that they don't last. We lay up treasure in heaven because it does last. As we sang, we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We don't live by bread alone. Jesus spoke about this in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I simply ask you, is that true of your lifestyle and my lifestyle? Do we hold on lightly to material things? We have this motto in Charlotte Chapel on our logo. We're conspicuous for Christ. A distinctive community of believers transformed by the paramecy of Christ. So, if people look at our lifestyle as members of Charlotte Chapel, followers of Jesus Christ, does it declare to people, well, these people have a different attitude to possessions and material things. They're actually aliens and strangers. They don't really belong here. You see, what you are, your lifestyle, is determined by your attitude. A change of attitudes. Abraham and his family described they're looking for a country of their own. When you're a refugee or a foreigner, some of you are studying here, what do you feel? Do you not from time to time feel homesick? Do you not wish and long for the time you can go back to your own home country? Well, the writer says about Abraham and his family, actually, they weren't homesick because if they were, they would have gone back to the country they came from. They could have taken a reverse trip back to where of the Chaldees at any time. No, they were looking forward to a different city and country. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Notice what it says, a heavenly one. You see, they were looking for a physical promised land, yes, but beyond that, they were looking for something better. Can I put it this way? They were not homesick, they were heaven sick. They were heaven sick. One of the true marks of a person living by faith, and can I say this? It should be true of us, particularly as we get older and as we go on in the Christian life. The longer you go on as a Christian, the older you get, the two things should go together if you're a Christian, the more you become heaven sick and you realise this world is not the ultimate. And the big house, the extra car, all the attachments that people value in life Legitimate though they may be in their own place, they're not our ultimate goal and destination. They're never satisfied. But that attitude starts here and now. So Paul writes to the Christians in Colossae, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So here's a good test. Are you living by faith? Are you looking for a better country? Are you longing for heaven? Or do you want to return to your home country? Remember the first time I went abroad as a missionary, I lived in India for three years. I lived in India, it's a wonderful country, and I loved what I was doing, but as the time got near to my departure from Bombay and I got on the jumbo jet, I was just longing to get back home to England's green and pleasant land. I have to admit something to you. After a week... It was a letdown. That's a nice country, England. Uh, Scotland, of course, as you know, is even better. But... <laughs> but you see, I'd been living with a sense of false expectation. You see, maybe you're tempted this morning to go back as a Christian. You think, listen, I've sacrificed so much as a Christian. It's time I, I, I put number one first. It's time I put down roots here. It's time I, you know, settled. You're not a, you're an alien. You're a stranger. This world is not my home. Just a passing through. 
I used to sing that, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Only if you're rooted in God's promises for the future. As an alien and a stranger, looking for a heavenly country, can you know that when you die, you won't be disappointed? Why? Because the promises are yet to be fulfilled. If you are to die in faith, you must live by faith. And notice what he says. He says, those who say such things show such things. What you say should show how you live. In the Bible speaks today, commentary on Hebrews, Raymond Brown writes about these people. They made bold confession of their pilgrim attitudes to life. They made it clear they were seeking a homeland. Their outspoken witness is a challenge to our guilty silence. The majority of our contemporaries live as though this world is everything. Is that not true? They have no eternal dimension in their, to their thinking whatever. Christians have the responsibility of reminding them winsomely but directly that there is a life beyond this one and that after death comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 It's appointed to men once to die and after that judgment. Almost finished. But let me finish where I began. At the graveside. I just did a quick check in my record since I've been here in this church. I've taken at least 118 funeral services. We call them services of thanksgiving. Ranging from a tiny newborn baby to a lady over a hundred years old. And everybody in between. Some of your families. Do we not grieve on these occasions? Of course we do. Because death is an intruder. We miss those. Our loved ones. But as the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica, we grieve with hope. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. So what makes us different from the rest of men and women? Simply this. That those who live by faith die in faith, relying on God's promises. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he's prepared a city for them. You see, when you leave this life, it's like a kind of final departure. And you end up at immigration. The judgment seat of God. And only those who've lived by faith in God, those who've lived by faith in God, you know what God says at that point? He says, I'm not ashamed of you. I've prepared a city for you. I'm not ashamed of you. I've prepared a city for you. Only if you live by faith in Christ can you die in faith, die in hope. I hope that's your hope this morning. Let's pray together.